And you may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We finally moved on to the next chapter in Ephesians after spending a good long while in Ephesians chapter 1. And you'll remember after that little introduction in Ephesians chapter 1, the rest of the chapter is two very long sentences. Verses 3 to 14 are one sentence. Now, not in your English Bible. I'm talking the way Paul wrote it. And then Paul wrote another sentence beginning in verse 15 that continues through the rest of chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, we're going to address not all these verses together, but we're going to read them through one time right at the beginning. This is now a third sentence, and it's seven more verses. So Paul in Ephesians writes very long sentences. It reads like this from the English Standard Version. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the first sentence of chapter 2, the way that Paul writes it. Now, I can tell you, I've never taught Ephesians before, uh, so this is a brand new book for me. There were a lot of books I'd never taught before until I came to fellowship. I'm running down to the end of New Testament books that I've never taught here, but I've never taught Ephesians, and I've also never been in a church that I can recall where Ephesians was taught as a book. So I know I've read Ephesians through lots of times, but I realize now that I'm slowing down to actually teach it how easy it is to miss connections and continuity and things that that connect chapters together because my default mode is, or if, I don't know if it's lazy, it's, it's just hard not to have a mental break when you see the end of a chapter and starting another chapter. Now, sometimes it's pretty obvious that the break is in a very bad spot, but a lot of times it's not. And so, you know, if you're a person that, kind of like me, where you read certain chapters, or maybe you're on a Bible reading schedule, it tells you to read this chapter or these many chapters, and you come to the end of a chapter and you're done. And then you start the next day with the next chapter, and you might miss connections between chapters. And there's very much connections between what I just read and what went before in Ephesians chapter 1. And because that's the case, and because it's been three weeks since I taught Ephesians, it's going to be a little bit more work to think about what just happened that we don't want to miss. So as much as you may think I was done reviewing Ephesians chapter 1, I've got to review it just a little bit so that you don't miss what Paul just said. It looks something like this. After praising God for all of his multifaceted blessings for those who have been placed in Christ, that is, verses 3 to 14, Paul shares with the believers, that is, local churches, what he's praying for them. 
Ephesians chapter 1, really the focus is just, well, the first verses 3 to 14, the focus is all on the blessings that believers have in Christ. What the chosen, by God's grace, purpose of grace, have in Christ. And we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But then he moves on from this, these multifaceted blessings to, now let me tell you what I'm praying for you. And it looks like this. He prays, condensed down, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. So he's praying, praying for them that, I know you just heard what I wrote in verses 3 to 14, but no matter how you took it, I think Paul would say, I don't think you really appreciate it. Because if you really appreciated it, it would change you even more than it has. And you would welcome it even more than you do. And you would be a little bit more excited like, Hand in the and VBS when they're up here doo-wopping and and we wouldn't just be like that's well and Sarah too, I'm such an old Baptist. It's just it's just and Lutheran Lutheran's even worse because they didn't even sing happy songs, <laughs> so it's just hard for me to change that. Any rate, so here's what he wants them to know. Number one, what is the hope to which he's called you? You have a certain hope if you're in Christ. God has called you to that hope. You need to know it. And by the way, this is all material that we've addressed in the past. So if you're like, I'm not sure what he means by that, you can always go back to the old messages, the audio messages that are posted, and you can get more detail as to all what I'm showing on the screen right now. So he wants us to know what is the hope to which he's called you. He wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants us to know something about hope, riches, and the greatness of his power. It's life-changing. And all of this is based upon God's power, which has already been evidenced in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I pray these things for you because I know... What God has promised. I know how he's blessed you in Christ. And I know what he's already done for his son. And because I know all these things, that's what gives me this bold assurance and confidence. I can pray these things expecting you to be affected and changed by these things. What did God do for Christ? For one, he raised Jesus from death. Number two, God seated Jesus in the heavenly places. And number three, God gave Jesus dominion over all things. Look back at chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. I want to read those verses for you. Paul writes there, speaking of God, that he worked, speaking of God's power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So I want you to know these things, because God has raised Jesus... God has seated Jesus in the heavenly places. That's the ascension. He's, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
and is seated at the throne. And God gave Jesus dominion, headship over all things. And based upon that, chapter 2 begins, and it begins with the word, and you. That and clearly is linking back to what I just said. I've just been talking about God's power. And you also have been affected by God's power. So in verses 1 to 7, there's one main subject. It's God. It's not us. We're the objects. The subject in verses 1 to 7 is God. And there are three verbs, three things that God does. Number one, he made us alive together with Christ. The second thing that God did for us, he raised us up with him. And the third thing that God does, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. You can't help but see the connection back with the end of chapter 1. Because he just described all that God had done for his son. He, he raised him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He gave Jesus dominion over all things in heaven and in earth, this age and the next age. And then regarding us, he made us alive. He raised us up with him. And we're seated with him in the heavenly places. The connection is obvious. And then I want you to direct your attention to a prefix in each one of these verbs. Made us alive is one verb in the Greek. Raised us up is one verb in the Greek. Seated us is one verb in the Greek. And each of those verbs starts, if you were to translate it literally into English, it starts with Sun, don't think of the sun like that shines in the sky. It's just, a, it's just a prefix to the verb. And that prefix means together. It means with. And each of those verbs, one, two, three, made us alive, raised us up, seated, seated us, starts with that same prefix. So it's translated this way, made us alive together with. That's not a separate word. That's the prefix of the verb. If it were really consistent, it would read, He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Him. And He seated us together with Him in the heavenly places. The connection between God's people, the people that belong to Christ, and what God has done for Christ is inseparable. These things can never happen. They can never be part of our experience because it's part of Christ's experience. Paul is assured of these things and he's assuring believers of these things because it's true of Christ. If it's true of Christ, it has to be true of believers. Christ's resurrection defines who he is. It, uh, he's a human reigning in heaven. Fully God, but he's also fully man. But he's human. He's entirely human. That resurrection changes our human lives as well. We'll never be fully God, but we are now fully human in the sense that we are made right with God through Christ. Let's move forward. There's bad news that comes before all this good news on the right-hand side of the column. The bad news is, it starts with a saying, I don't know who said it first, I think the first person I heard say it, I think I wrote him in my notes because I keep forgetting his name, is Rick Holland. He came to uh, the Truth for Every Man conference some few years ago, uh, it's a terrific saying, if sin is not the problem, then the gospel is not the solution. 
So we've got, a, we've got a lot of gospel here. We've got a lot of good news over on the right-hand side of the screen. But first, there's bad news. And the bad news is sin. Now, you could, state, you could uh, make that same statement different ways. You could say, if sin is not the problem, then Christ is not the solution. You could say, if sin is not the problem, then God is not the solution. Or if you want to put it in terms of life and death, if death is not the problem, then life is not the solution. But let me assure you, sin is the problem. And that's what makes the gospel the gospel. That's what makes the good news the good news, because we really do have a problem. John Stott passed away in 2011. Uh, he's a British theologian, uh, wrote many, many books. He's a prolific author. Uh, while he was living, I'm sure he must have been a friend of J.I. Packer. They were kind of out of the same vein. Both individuals have contributed greatly to Christ's church by the grace of God. But John Stott, in his commentary on chapter 2, those first few verses, he says this. Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to point a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. That's just a... Uh, J.I. Packer, uh, John Stott both had a way of writing very well. Uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, is is just one of the best classics I've ever read uh, since becoming a Christian in my lifetime. Just a terrific book. The depths of pessimism about man and the heights of optimism about God. That captures beautifully what's happening in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back and start at those first few verses. Verses 1 to 3, more than one commentator has pointed out that those first three verses, if you want commentary on those verses... You don't have to buy a book, just turn in your Bibles to Romans, chapter, Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, because those three chapters give a lot more detail on these three verses. What's in those three verses, all this bad news, is detailed in, in three entire chapters when Paul writes the Romans. They're very much complementary. We're not going to go to Romans chapter 3. I just uh, offer that to you for what you can do on your own. He starts off, and the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the word you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, there's, a, there's another old song. I don't know that I ever sang it in church, but I must have sung it somewhere because I know it. But there's a song about, uh, it's not your brother, not your sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not, it's not my father, not my mother, uh, but it's me, O oh Lord, that stands in the need of prayer. Well, what, if you take those verses, it's, like, it's not your neighbor, it's not your, it's not your sibling, it's, it's not your father, your mother that's in trespasses and sins. It's you. It's me. It's a lot easier to see where everybody else is sinning. It's a lot harder to see where I'm sinning. Because I judge everybody else's sin by what I see, and I judge my sin by my motives. Well, I didn't mean to do that. That's kind of uncharacteristic of me. That's not who I really am. And so I can find lots of ways to excuse myself because I look at my motives and I think, I wasn't really trying to, I didn't mean to hurt you. But when you hurt me, your motives are kind of unimportant. What you did was wrong. But Paul starts off, and he, 
you've kind of got, you've got to emphasize that word you. This isn't a message for everybody around you. It's not a message for our culture. It's a message for you. We're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The trespasses and sins we walk in are not the cause of death, but are the result of death. He's not saying you're dead because you're walking in trespasses and sins. He's saying because you're dead, you're walking in trespasses and sins. Now, I could kind of clarify that and say the only reason why we're dead is because we did sin in Adam. Sin is, or death is the result of sin. But my walk, my lifestyle in trespasses and sins is not what brought me to that death. It's the death I participated in when Adam trespassed in Genesis chapter 3. That's what brought death. And that's what causes me to walk in trespasses and sins apart from Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit later in verse 3, I think. Everyone starts off with a particular view about man's being and nature. Churches start off with a, a starting point. Uh, psychology starts off with a starting point. Sociology, government officials, organizations, people in general. Everybody starts with a certain view about what do you think about man, about humankind. And this is apart from Christ, this is before Christ, there's basically three options if you were to reduce it down. The first option is that people are good. They're basically fine. Now, those individuals that espouse this view that say people are good, they're basically fine, they're not saying there aren't problems. But what they would say is it's our environment that is bad and if we learn to control external influences, we will show how good we really are. And the interesting thing about this is, you know, we try to change our, our environment, these external influences. You know, if people were only, in, if they were only educated rightly, they would make good choices. Uh, if people were only, uh, if there was only economic uh, equality, people would make good choices. If there was only the right style of government, people would make good choices. If there were only the right economic system, people would make good choices. And the conservative group huddles up. This isn't everybody, but the conservative group huddles up, and they're like, if we could only, if we could only eliminate the liberals and the progressive, people would flourish. They're the problem. And then the liberal group huddles up, and they're like, if we could only get rid of the religious right, people would flourish. Religion is what's holding us back because people are basically good. We're basically okay. But that's not Paul's view. Paul's view is not that people are basically good and fine. The second view is where most people are at, and that is people are flawed. And there's some mixture of good and bad. Religions are based on this. People that go to church think this. People in the world think this. The problem isn't only outside, it's also inside. We have internal deficiencies. But the situation isn't hopeless. It's not entirely bad. Because God is ready, willing, and able if we will only make some movement, some movement in the right direction. If we will only take the right step, God is more than willing to help us along the way in this mixture of good and bad. Now, some are a little more bad than others, but 
people that think this way always, my experience is, they, only, they always regard themselves on, mostly on the good side. But that's not Paul's view either. Paul's view is the third view, that people are dead. It's what theologians call total depravity. The book's on my shelf. Um, all my theology books, I think they all espouse this idea of total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that sinners are as bad as they could be. It is not what that means. Total depravity means that every aspect of our being is tainted and marred by sin. Every aspect of our being is tainted and marred by sin. By God's mercies, we're not as bad as we could be. God gave government to restrain evil. That is a role of government. God gave conscience to restrain evil. That is a role of conscience. But sin affects the entire being apart from Christ. Described another way, left to our own will, thinking, and desires, our condition is hopeless. And if that sounds like, how could we possibly leave people in this condition? According to our own will and thinking, we think we're okay. Because most people think, well, I'm a mix of good and bad, but I'm mostly good, and I don't need the gospel as presented by Paul or presented by Jesus or other places in Scripture. I'm doing pretty nicely. So the situation is hopeless, but people left to themselves don't think of themselves as hopeless. It is hopeless. But that's not how they view themselves. According to their thinking, they're doing pretty good. And they don't, they're not interested in your gospel. They're not interested in what the Bible says, other than the verses that they cherry pick out to align it to whatever they've decided they want to believe. In what sense does Paul say we're dead? Well, clearly, he doesn't mean we're physically dead because I'm looking at a room full of people and there's billions more people out there and they're walking around and they're making decisions and they're living their lives. So when Paul says we're dead in trespasses and sins, he's not saying we're physically dead, though we will physically die. What Paul is saying is you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you are living your life, and you're living your life in such a way where you're missing the mark of truth, and you're trespassing against an altogether holy God, you're spiritually dead. When Adam disobeyed God in Genesis chapter 3, he did die. There was a separation that took place between the creature and the creator. There was now a separateness between God communing with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, walking in the garden, and what happened after that. Death means separation. When you physically die, there is a separation that takes place between your physical body and the spirit that is inside of you. That's death. When Adam died and we are spiritually dead, there is a separation between ourselves and God. There's also a separation that exists between myself and other people and a separation between myself and all of God's creation. That is, it is not whole. It is not healthy. It is not right. There is conflict. There is disharmony. I disagree with 
a good number of books, and I disagreed both times I was in college, with professors that say conflict is not a result of sin. I think conflict very much is a result of sin. And when I was at Lincoln Christian University, uh, kind of, well, Terry was there too. We probably took some of the same classes. But, but they very much taught that conflict is not the result of sin. Uh, there was conflict before the fall, and I'm, I don't think there was. And I would argue that in the paper because that's, because I'm kind of belligerent like that. And they disagreed. They, no, conflict is part of the fall. I don't think it was. I think that it doesn't mean there weren't differences of opinion that, you know, people discussed in healthy, productive ways. There wasn't disharmony. There wasn't, well, I think, you know, people, nobody had all knowledge, so they talked it through, and it was a beautiful experience. But now, there's so much at stake, if you disagree with me, because now I feel like you've challenged me, and I've... I'm less of a person, and I'm offended, and, and I come back at you with something else, and there's all this disharmony we have now because of sin, because of death. So we're dead in the sense that we are spiritually dead. A good illustration and analogy, and I'm glad Hannah isn't running VBS where she does her bad analogy thing and she punches the button as, you know, bad analogy, you shouldn't use that. So I don't know how good of an, an analogy this is, but on some level, I found it helpful. So we'll see. It's probably not perfect, but here's what it is. It's zombies. <laughs> zombies are the living dead. Zombies are dead people who in some sense are still living and they're decaying and rotting and their, their nature has been changed and it's not good. There's a sense in which apart from Christ, we're zombies. Yes, we're living, but our appetites are so corrupted. Our will is so corrupted. Our thoughts are so corrupted. We're estranged from God and we're at odds with people around us or people that disagree with us. We're zombies and that's a problem. And that's a problem. A second illustration. Martin Luther wrote The Bondage of the Will, which is, was an answer to Erasmus's book on the freedom of the will. And Martin Luther looked at Scripture and he said, I don't think you're reading Scripture rightly. In fact, our wills are bound by sin. We do exactly what we want to do, and it's always tainted and motivated by our sin. It doesn't mean... And we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think, today. It doesn't mean everybody is a Romans 1 kind of sinner where you're parading your immorality. It may be you're parading your righteousness and you're a good moral person and you treat your neighbor nicely and you don't have loud parties, fundraisers like they do a block away from my house for the better part of the week. It's driving me crazy. All right? Some people are very noble in lots of ways, but when we parade our righteousness, it's no less offensive to God than if I'm holding a rainbow flag saying, I get to choose my own identity. It's all offensive to God. Luther said, from Scripture, I think it's right, our wills are bound by sin and left to ourselves. It is hopeless. It is hopeless. In Good News Club... We, or not Good News Club, VBS, I'll say that perpetually, we did the Temple of Truth, which was uh, uncovering the ancient truth of the Trinity. So 
I did deal with the Trinity, but not as much as maybe Hannah envisioned I would at the beginning. I kind of tied it together at the end, though, especially. I talked a lot about God. I just wanted to start with the concept of God, and I wanted to start with the concept of sin. And in VBS, one of the things I taught them early on, it all came together the last night where I really did accentuate the Trinity. But in VBS, I taught them that they have the sin disease. Now, by calling the sin disease, especially the third night, I made it clear the sin disease is death. But I called it a a disease as well. And I said, you all have the sin disease, and I know you have the sin disease. And how do I know you have the sin disease? And how do you know I have the sin disease? And the answer is, I know you have the sin disease because you sin. And then one of the illustrations I used... I guess that's an analogy, would be uh, a skunk. And I know a skunk stinks, and we lived on a farm, and when we lived on a farm, uh, you didn't have to see the skunk. You knew that when the skunk was out there at night digging up grubs, which is a good thing, but you knew a skunk was out there because they smelled really bad. And you could tell when they, I don't know how close they had to be, but they didn't have to be in the immediate yard. They were out there, you smelled a skunk. But you could, and I told him this in VBS, can you imagine if that skunk says, no matter where I go, people flee from me and hold their nose and say, I stink. But if that skunk goes and asks another skunk, do you think I stink? The other skunk would be like, you smell okay to me. So I told the kids in in VBS, I'm like, you've got the sin disease. You could go ask your grandparents who love you dearly Do I have the sin disease? Can you believe in VBS? I'm telling kids they have a sin disease and they're dead in sin. And you go ask their grandparents, they're like, oh, honey, you're so wonderful and special and I love you and no, you don't have the sin disease. That's like one skunk telling another skunk you don't stink. We all stink because we all have the sin disease. So in VBS, what we also learned to tie the Trinity in What we discovered, or what I tried to teach, and I could make this a review lesson, I don't know. I mean, I used to do games until this year. So I was on a real high for a lot of years, but I was getting really old. And Hannah put me out in the, you know, she like put me back in the barn, like, okay, which was really glad because I really enjoyed, three days of games was about killing me. Uh, But at any rate, for a lot of years in VBS, kids were all be like, we love the games. And I'm like, that's right, I'm in charge of the games. Nobody said... Tonight, today, we love the teaching. Like, wow, you know, that was my favorite part of it. Nobody said that, so back down to reality. (laughs) But at any rate, what we discovered, how the Trinity all is involved in salvation. The Father planned salvation. He purposed it. He planned it. The Father planned it. The Son became salvation. He was salvation. The Father planned, and we talked about John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only, because of love. We don't, we don't understand the magnitude of God's love by creation. We understand better something of the magnitude of God's love in sending his son. The Father planned, the son became salvation. But we talked about that second day, we talked about we're in a pickle. And to be in a pickle means you've got a problem you can't solve. Because if you can solve it, you're not in a pickle. We have lots of problems and we solve our problems. But if you're in a pickle, you have a problem that is unsolvable. The Father planned it. 
The Son became salvation, but we're still in a pickle because we don't want it. We're not interested in it. I think I'm okay. So the Spirit made us alive. And by making us alive, we want what the Father planned. We want what the Son became. And the Father, Son, and Spirit together accomplished salvation by grace. Jesus, in John chapter 11, cried out to Lazarus, who was dead for four days. By now he stinketh. Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out. And he came out. That's what we are. We stinketh. We're, it, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And we're made alive by the power of God. By his spirit being applied to our hearts. Erwin Lutzer, this is an audio clip I've played probably not all that long ago. But it's one of my favorites. I know, like I, I'm not a movie person. So I don't watch many movies. I watch a few movies in the wintertime when I have to exercise on an elliptical because it's so terribly boring. So I watch some movies then. And I am loathe hardly... I don't like watching movies a second time for the most part. Casablanca is an exception. That's a winner every time. I used to show, back when my kids were growing up, I'd show all the Sarah's friends and the teen girls. I'd bring them over to the house because they hadn't seen Casablanca, and it was my mission in life to share the gospel in Casablanca. <laughs> so I'd show them Casablanca because it's such a great movie. But I don't tend to like movies that much, but I love sermons. And I can listen to them over and over and over. And this is a sermon clip or a chapel message, I don't know what it was, that I can listen to over and over again. But since I played it not that long ago, I shortened it. I cut out about a minute. So instead of four minutes, it's three minutes. If you're unfamiliar with Erwin Lutzer, uh, he pastored Moody Memorial Church up in Chicago. He's a prolific author as well. Uh, he taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which he'll refer to here in Deerfield. A very winsome individual, and he tells a story that is very appropriate for this moment, talking about our deadness and God making us alive. We're right at 1130, so that's a good time. I'll open it up for comments and questions afterward, or we could press on just a little bit further. Uh, I'll leave it up to you, which we do. Erwin Luster says this. You say, well, if it's a miracle of God, then why do you even preach? Why don't you just let God do his miracles? It's because during preaching, God may do a miracle. I'm going to tell you a story which I've told a couple of times now in prayer meeting and so forth, and since various versions of it are now floating around the church, you might as well get it from the person who was active in its instigation. I teach once a week this semester up at Trinity International University, I teach preaching. And uh, one day I was trying to think of how I could impress upon my students the fact that it is while we were dead in trespasses and sins that God raised us. And unless God raises the dead, spiritually speaking, preaching is, is useless. So I decided to take them to a cemetery in Deerfield. So after lecturing for a while, I told the students to pack up their books I told them we were going to the cemetery, told them how to get there. They arrived. They are all gathering around. We come to a tombstone that's maybe four feet high. 
with a man uh, buried in it. Uh, Jonathan, I believe, was his name, and his wife, uh, Adrian. At least we'll say that. I do remember they died in 1912, Jonathan and Adrian. And so I read the text where it says, We're dead in trespasses and sins. And God sovereignly made us alive. And then I read Ezekiel 37 where God says, Ezekiel, preach to these dry bones. So I said to one of the students, Tom, I said, Tom, would you preach to Adrian and Jonathan and tell them it's resurrection morning and it's time to get up? And I stared at him. And you know, he wouldn't do it. Seriously. He just stared back as if to say, you can't be serious. So I said, well, if you don't, I will. So I went over there and I shouted. I said, Jonathan and Adrian, rise up at the resurrection morning. And then I paused. Boy, I'm ever glad nothing happened. <laughs> and then I said to the students, you know what the problem is? They couldn't hear me. That was the problem. And I went over and I shouted more loudly. I said, Jonathan and Adrian, wake up. It's resurrection morning with all of my might waited. There was no resurrection. Then I said to the students, how do you think I felt doing that? Pretty stupid. Yeah. So stupid that Tom wouldn't even do it. <laughs> and I said, that's the way it is when we preach the gospel to people. We're doing something that is absolutely silly, apart from the fact that God in his grace might create a resurrection. Thoughts, comments? Yes, Carrie. Total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It means every aspect of our being is affected by sin. Every aspect of our being is affected, marred, tainted by sin. Theron. Yep. Um, yeah, although you're right, we are creating... So, Definitely people have value because they're creating the image of God. And on a very uh, human level, acts of goodness can be extended. But so far as our relationship with God, the deathness that exists there, Isaiah made it very clear our righteousness is as filthy rags. So, so both things are true. You're right. There is, it doesn't mean people on some level can't extend kindness to one another. But everything that we do, even an act of kindness or goodness, is tainted by our sin. But that's a point well taken. I agree. I had another thought, but I lost it. Somebody else? Joe. Yeah. We measure ourselves by ourselves, by one another. And, and you measure yourself a little better than I do. I measure myself a little better than you. But nobody's being measured by their neighbor or their family. You're being measured by Christ. And unless you are equal to his righteousness, you're in a pickle. You're in a pickle. So, yeah, we don't, reckon, we don't understand the holiness of God. I mean, we have an uncanny, uncanny ability to uh, be nostalgic about our past and to be nostalgic about decisions we've made and people that we've hurt. And, and most of us, I mean, there's some people that are in a hard way, and they usually have a lot of emotional problems because they're not dealing uh, with their past in light of the cross or in light of who Christ is. But most of us, we just, 
feel so good about our past and we can rearrange things where we think such wonderful things about our past and our decisions or maybe it's our upbringing. You know, I was raised... All right, next week uh, we're going to move on. Just I'll show you where we're going to start next week. We're going to start with our state of death as evidence in three ways. And uh, I think it's, there's a really neat little nuanced thing uh, that I find fascinating. I'm not sure if it's right. But if it's not right, it's not heresy, so it's not going to hurt you. But I think it's absolutely fascinating how Paul describes the state of death being evidenced in three ways. And that's still in the first three verses, and then we'll get to the good news in verse 4 as well. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.